1: Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in sociocultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am very honored to welcome Professor Amal Sachedina to the program today to discuss "Cultivating the Past, Living the Modern: The Politics of Time in the Sultanate of Oman," published in 2021 with Cornell University Press. Professor Sachedina is research associate and lecturer at the Department of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton. Professor Sajidina, welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, truly an honor. What
1: inspired you to put this book together?
0: Uh, Well, uh, part of it was um, growing up in the Arab Gulf region. Uh, I grew up in Kuwait, and as a Pakistani, it was a very different experience to what I knew about Oman even before i had ever gone there the first time. in Kuwait, you know, there was a very strong hierarchy in place where, um, basically, ethno-national um, nationalism played a role in creating a, a type of ladder um, where people were given a certain kind of status, um, a certain sort of ranking on the basis, on the one hand, of ethno-nationalism, and on the other, on the basis of of their of their job, and uh, everyone was sort of deemed um, suitable or unsuitable, uh, was um, accorded a certain form of a certain mode of respectability uh, on the basis of that hierarchical ranking, right? And of course, being a Pakistani, you were right, right at the bottom of of, those, of that ranking. And um, just, you know, from my um, own reading, Oman seemed like a very different kettle of fish in that uh, there seemed to be a greater fluidity and acceptance of ethno-racial makeup, um, insofar as this seemed to be a country that, in fact, um, was very proud of their strong maritime history and coastal empires. And on the basis of that great empire in the 19th into the 20th century, they had accepted communities of merchants and soldiers, uh, sailors, uh, from all over the Arab Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean uh, region. Um, They were communities of Balochis, uh, Sindhis, Uh, Zajalis, basically peoples from Gujarat and Balochistan, Iran, the Kutch region, who had settled in the 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 Omani uh, region and. They had flourished there. And more importantly, unlike in Kuwait, um, they had become Omani citizens. So one of the key questions that I had always had, even before I ever arrived in Oman for the first time, was basically how these communities had assimilated uh, in Oman. How um, you know, did they feel themselves to be Arab? Um, or Omani, and on what basis? You know, how about there are very different histories being navigated to become part and parcel of, of uh, Omani nationalism and the, uh, the national narrative of the, the country? So, yeah, So that's basically my background in, in um, becoming interested in, in Oman in the first place.
1: Yeah. So, the book is called Cultivating the Past, Living the Modern. What do you mean by cultivating the past and living the modern?
0: Well, um, from the 1970s onwards, okay, there was a massive emphasis on history and heritage from the beginning as part of modern nation state building. And, you know, you had uh, the first museums that were coming up within four years of Sultan Gabus's um, coming to power from 1970 onwards. And ordinary objects, everything from the, co- the coffee pot to, to the Tao, um, to, to clothing, jewelry, the forts and castles themselves that have uh, such a strong um, and ancient history in Oman, basically became incorporated uh, to creating um, a heritage landscape, right? Um, and of course, many of these physical remains were part of an imamate, uh, the Ibadi imamate, which uh, was a thousand-year-old religious uh, sectarian tradition Um which had manifested itself most recently in the 20th century into a political entity from 1913 to into the late 1950s as a direct result of resistance to British colonial rule. So many of those physical remains of the imamate, which um, range from the forts and castles of the interior to the uh, ordinary coffee pot, and had, in fact, been an integral part of the imamate in facilitating social ties and networks in the very distinctive community that was grounded in Ibadi sharia. And basically what you see, uh, which makes it so fascinating, is that those objects crop up again in order to substantiate um, the modern nation-state of Oman. And the question becomes, on what basis then, does it do so? And so I sort of delve into this notion of uh, what I called, um, what in fact Lord Thor calls purification, which separates the material forms of these objects and sites from the Sharia practices that define their significance for the Ibadi Imamate, and set within the rubric of heritage, um, basically the process of distanciation, collecting these objects and then representing them um, through museumification um, and heritage basically uh, transforms them into artifacts, monuments, architectures, exhibitions that in in turn entrench a very territorialized notion of of, 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 uh, a political state, the modern nation state of the southern of Oman. So in that sense, uh, not only um, are we talking about representation, We're also talking about these objects and sites intervening to transform these peoples who are once subjects to very different political entities um, into becoming citizens for the first time with very different uh, relationships with the past, uh, with uh, different um, ethical orientations, um, very different uh, notions of history, ideally, uh, with very different uh, sense of disposition, um, with um, with um, ways through which to orient themselves as part of day-to-day life. All of that becomes part and parcel of what heritage is trying to do in order to substantiate and entrench the modern nation state, which again only came into being in Oman from 1970 onwards with the advent of Sultan bin Said, who, by the way, also came to power only with the help of a British coup.
1: And so there are two cities that play a very central role in the story that you're telling. One is Nizwa, and one is Muscat. And Nizwa sort of represents the main location of the Imamate from 1913 onto the 1950s and Muscat represents sort of the the seat of the Sultanate from 1970 onwards. Could you maybe talk about the dichotomy between these two cities?
0: Yeah, well, basically, Nizwa was the heart of the Ibadi Imamate. It was at the heart of, uh, basically, Ibadi resistance to British colonial rule. And again, since the British, in, in fact, had entrenched the power of a sultan, who, in fact, even the title never existed before the British came along, yeah. um, again the the basically two entities arose one was nizwa seat of resistance the seat of the ibadi imamate in the 20th century in the interior of the country uh, versus um the sultanate again uh, with a sultan or a ruler who had come to power um in not only in terms of title but also in terms of um dependence on the British uh, in order to cement his power and authority on the coastland with, with again the, his capital in maskat and he was basically ruling over the coastal regions again with the help of British warships uh, primarily because their, the British interest in the region was as a safeguard to the, for the passage of the British Raj versus the interior in which they were not even remotely interested in and because the British were not that interested in, uh, in the interior that area was able to uh, basically maintain its sense of resistance and foster it in order to create an alternative polity um, that was very differently oriented, grounded in Sharia with the notion of, of the, uh, an Ibadim Imam, which again is a, a more than a thousand year tradition. So,
1: yeah. I'd really like to zoom in on chapters three and four to kind of give listeners a taste of this book. In chapter three, you begin by talking about the role that museums play in the uh, development of the nation state of Oman. Could you discuss the ways in which the state uses museums to tell specific stories?
0: Yeah, so um, with the the museums, which again began from the 1970s onwards, you basically also have a process through which a certain um, notion of time is being promulgated and entrenched as part of modern nation-state building. Uh, And by that, I mean a a particular sense of tradition. And tradition here, I'm taking Talal Asad's... Way of thinking about the relationship between past, present, and future as fostering a certain notion and understanding of what tradition is. So, I'm sort of tr- throughout my book, I'm tracking that relationship between past, present, and future to basically sort of think through um, how Oman is distinctive in its historical and cultural specificity and the kind of tradition that it's constantly being promoted and instilled as part of daily living uh, in, of, amongst the peoples in the region. With regard to museums themselves, if a Western historical museum works the process of cataloging, separating, uh, displacing customs and traditions that are thought to stand in the way of modernization and therefore creating this tacit separation between tradition and modernity, okay, um, through its promotion and representation of history, what was happening in Omani museums from the 1970s right up to the last museum but that that I actually delved into and and analyzed, which was the the new National Museum in Muscat, which opened in the summer of, I think it was 2017. Um, The Omani museums, in fact, don't make that separation between tradition and modernity at all, right? Um, So even as objects, major objects and sites, ranging again from the forts and castles to everyday objects, even as these are preserved as historical evidence, An object is still emphasized through textual panels and labels as um, something that's still contemporary, that still has present use, right? So you have past livelihoods like uh, boat building, maritime trade, date cultivation, which are never assigned a specified stage in calendrical time, right? So the tradition uh, or the past, in other words, the historical, are never completely severed from the modern. So in other words, there's a constant emphasis throughout these museums over a period of 50 years um, that basically the past is in constant um, continuance with the present and future. Okay, They reinforce each other. In other words, past, present, and future reinforce each other. And they never cut from each other at all. So in other words, Oman's past comes to be read as inextricably linked to a national present that assumes a a niche in a longer history in the story of progress and civilization, right? And this museum narrative, whatever it is, whether it's boats, whether it's architectural features like um, balconies, uh, clothing, jewelry, uh, pottery, whatever it is, okay, the the, the storyline is that Um, These all become representations of the grandeur of um, what the Omani man or woman have been able to accomplish through sheer labor, through harnessing the resources um, of the lands and seas of the Omani region, taming the lands and the surrounding seas, and that becomes a part of a dynamic of um, purposive becoming, becoming Omani, right? Right. so in, in that sense, this is, this is radically different from the role that these objects and sites played during the Ibadi Imam, right? Where basically they have their functions, their uses, um, the way in which they reinforce communal ties and relationships or the deploying of um, law, for example, or jurisprudence, all were sort of grounded in the notion of Sharia time, right? Um, in the way in which um, an exemplary past Okay, again, anchored to uh, the Sirat an Nabawi, the Sahaba. Okay, um, again, b- 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 um, had a massive influence in ethical um, comportment and dispositions in uh, the way in which uh, law and order worked um, in an Ibadi Sharia society. And now you're seeing those same objects and sites massively displaced from Sharia time to become part of an entirely different sense of time and tradition where it's an unknown future that becomes the grounding, uh, through which history is now playing a role to anchor people, um, again, into a very different sense of polity, one anchored to the territorialized modern nation state. And in accordingly, again, reconfiguring in the process, their sense of Islam, their sense of time, their sense of history or historical experience, their sense of ethical disposition, right. Um, and so, in that sense, like they are there, there's a massive shift that's taking place, that's um, moving the citizens from being, uh, or rather, moving people from being subjects of an Ibadi Sharia society to that of, of modern nation uh, national citizens. Yeah, with with all that that entails.
1: <laughs> and here, the imamate, which was such an important political structure. In Oman between nineteen thirteen and the nineteen fifties, what role does the Imamate get in these museums?
0: It's um, even the great Imams, like for example, even the Yareba Imams. Okay, um, they are no longer considered in terms of Imams in the sense of basically being the promoters and facilitators of Ibadi Sharia. They, in fact, in turn, become national heroes. Right? Uh, who basically promoted the strength of, of, of the Omani region, who had created the, the first empire uh, in the 16th century, who had ousted the Portuguese through basically using the same tools that they had learned on how to build wooden ships from the Portuguese and using that in order to finally bid uh, not only the Oman, but also East Africa of the Portuguese presence, right? So that's how they are promoted and celebrated. At the same time, as uh, some of the the great... Uh, Ibadi imamid dynasties become national heroes, the 20th century Ibadi imamid, that's that same entity that had basically resisted um, and had flourished as a mode of resistance against British colonial rule, that disappears altogether from museum representations or or public history altogether. Even even school textbooks never, ever mention them. Uh, So they're basically um, obscured or uh, rather... um, Excised from from history altogether, as well as of course British colonial rule, which again um, began from the early to mid 19th century and then became uh, only stronger into the 20th century. Okay, so so certain histories um, of violent encounters, transformations of the region that were brought about by the British by British colonial rule, the discovery of oil, um, as well as uh, again, um, the mode of resistance that, that came about through Ibadi uh, 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 Imamate rule, those are effectively removed altogether from the public domain. So you never really see them. And at the same time, what's really fascinating is that it still remains in the memories of peoples and it has a profound impact of, on them. And the way in which official histories of uh, in uh, b- shape and transform people's sense of, of their own history and memories of the Abadi Imam, it becomes some, uh, some, a very fruitful mode of inquiry as to what's going on in Oman today.
1: Chapter 4 is called The Ethics of History Making. What are the ethics of history making?
0: So um, basically this chapter is exploring the Underlying logic behind the sheer ubiquity of heritage Im- imagery in Oman and this idealized past that uh, that the state is trying to nurture. So, in their transformation of um, this mode of heritage production, right, these objects and architectures and sites, they're not just um, entrenching a territorially grounded nation state for the first time. They're also, in fact, um, tethered to of um, uh, the cultivation of a very distinct historical consciousness, right, that becomes imminent to social relationships, um, modes of authorizing time, ethical techniques that permeate modern nation state building, right? So, um, again, you might say, well, these objects, well, they're just in museums, right? So what the hell? Who gives a bloody damn? But it's not. that's not the case. They are everywhere. They're part of the streetscapes in all the major regional capitals, especially. They're in school textbooks. They're in official publications that uh, seem to uh, basically land in the most unexpected of places in in, in Oman. So they're continuously being um, reproduced over and over again. There's a there's a um, iterable um, role that they are playing where you you can't move anywhere in the country without being aware of them and what they're trying to say in terms of uh, people's sense of history and heritage. And what I'm arguing is basically that there's a reason for that insofar as it's not just about entrenching um, a national landscape that's uh, territorially grounded for this first time. They're also um, basically trying to act as a filter through which to navigate the uh, unknown pitfalls of globalization, right, Um, an unknown future, Okay, which is, again, what, what modernist notions of time are all about. So basically what the, what the state is trying to do is use that past as a form of habitus in order to get um, the peoples of Oman sort of to navigate through this unknown globalized future that they have no control over and that one could argue is more or less um, an integral part of a hegemonic West and do so in a way that they can still remain um, true to being Omani. Okay, uh, 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 within suitable parameters set out by the state through heritage discourse and imagery. So that's what um, I'm sort of thinking through in the ethics of history making.
1: Yeah, and you just mentioned heritage imagery. Could you talk a little bit more about these different objects that form heritage imagery and what the effects of heritage imagery in Oman are?
0: Yes. Yeah, so uh, again, it's that the sheer ubiquitous, ubiquitous nature that I'm trying to kind of grapple with, uh, and again, you know, the the usual narrative is that it's about entrenching the nation state, and I'm I'm arguing it's not about that so much as um, that might be part of the the equation here, but. It's also that it, the sheer ubiquity is supposed to um, naturalize the productive possibilities of a living, ongoing connection, okay, with the past, present, and future. And what it's doing is rationalizing that connection between this, th- these three different um, dimensions of time, right? Um, and, and that, in so far, again, as they're establishing the ethical ethical conditions for an idealized relationship, right? So. I mean, if you think about it, um, pre 1970, you had a Sharia notion of time, which was basically entrenching a very different authoritative and ethical uh, model, uh, and even a religious model for um, how Oman should go about its day-to-day life. Right? This was Sharia time. This was the Ibadi Imamate, uh, and this was again grounded in an exemplary past embodied by prophetic Sunnah, by the Sahaba. Um, the Golden Age of the Rashidun, and so on. The Sultan comes along, and in all on- honesty, despite the fact that the, the dynasty had originated with the Imams, he's more or less considered a British puppet, right? And one, one thing that's important to know is that Oman doesn't even have a. A national day, which is an independence day, which is very unusual for the Arab Gulf states. So technically, they never broke free from British colonial rule, especially as the president, as the Sultan Qaboos um, was put in place by a British-sponsored coup. So again, they needed a radical shift to a different sense of time that would propagate and entrench uh, an alternative way of thinking and living um, for the people of that region which again it was uh, what heritage um, is doing, in fact. So again, uh, since 1970, authoritative time in Oman has been predicated on an unknown future. Again, this is part and parcel of um, of a Western and now globalized notion of time. And again, this is a future that is assumed to be constantly changing into something new, something unknown. And what heritage is basically doing um, in its sure ubiquitous um, presence in the in the country is basically acting as a form of uh, a filter, uh, a habituating filter, because again, it's it's entrenching that that mindset into into people, into uh, modern day citizens, uh, as a way of uh, navigating that unknown future in in a way that um, is still within the parameters of what the Omani state would, would consider suitable. So whatever new technology or ideas come to pass in, in, the, in, the, in the region, the assumption is that people would absorb that and indigenize it through the filter of what is heritage. So even with the, when the Arab Spring protests came along, one of the curious things was um, that in addition to programs for promoting employment, etc. cetera, uh, the Omani state also had massive symposia and workshops for the youth of the country that were promoting heritage. Again, the assumption was that, that you embrace the future, you navigate the unknown shoals of um, the, 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 the massive uh, challenges of Western globalization through filtering it through um, a past, right? Um, and doing so in ways, again, that are suitable uh, for and uh, are, are not amenable to modern nation state building in Oman.
1: Right? And this emphasis on heritage then takes the, the form of uh, emphasis on very specific objects in Oman, right? For example, the coffee pot. Could you talk about the role of the coffee pot?
0: Uh, yeah, so um, we're two major institutions that basically ran daily affairs in um Pre nineteen seventy or the pre nineteen seventy Nizwa, or uh, one could say that during the Imamate era in in Nizwa, one was of course Nizwa Fort, which was the center. of, which was basically the, the residence or headquarters of the Imam, but it was also the uh, where the Barza was. Um, uh, that is the the courthouse of where. Um, you know, people's uh, day-to-day court cases were presided and, and arbitrated over. It was also where students were uh, students of a very high ranking, the, those who are going to be future ulama, uh, future jurists and scholars uh, for for the for the imamate. This is where they were they were basically house as well as where they were being were being taught by the imam and and senior scholars. So again, the nizwa fort was one. The second was uh, the everyday. Majlis, okay, or Sabla, as it's called in Oman. And the Sabla was again, uh, it, it was basically an institution that all Nizwani men, and women in an informal manner in their houses, but again, for Nizwani men or men of the interior, uh, this is where they presided over day-to-day affairs. This is where they talked, this is where they read uh, um, major texts. This is just where they had everyday uh, chit-chat. Um, and so the this, this Sabla uh, was basically mediated and facilitated or lubricated through the exchange of coffee and dates, which is where uh, the, the coffee, coffee pot becomes so crucial and important in that in its day-to-day functional role, it facilitated social interactions and relationships. Uh, people um, basically uh, read, um, like, you know, those who were able to read would, reach, uh, would, uh, would read major texts ranging from uh, prophetic narratives uh, to uh, major books on history and jurisprudence to those who couldn't read. So it was this one uh, forum where ideally at least, um, senior sheikhs and scholars um, who lived in the neighborhood would interact with those who were poorer uh, uh, or um, let's say in a more, more destitute, right? Um, and so, in that sense, the sabla and the coffee and the role of the coffee pot played a role in cementing social ties, interactions, and relationships that created the local neighborhood uh, in, um, in in the various um, quarters, residential quarters of Nizwa. And this is this isn't just true for Nizwa. This was a ubiquitous uh, institution throughout northern Oman and beyond. Um, and so, what happens is that. Once modernization sets in as part of modern nation-state building, the, the sabla sort of basically becomes defunct. Um, people are living very different lives. Once upon a time, you know, for example, uh, their their daily lives were uh, about you know working from eight to one or something. Um, uh, you know, they they would go to they would go for fajr namaz in the mornings. They would they would. Uh, work a little, uh, you know, doing agriculture uh, or or presiding over their their stalls in the souk. And then they would uh, basically uh, retreat to the sabla from the afternoon onwards, right up to Isha uh, at like nine, 10 o'clock at night. And so most of their time was actually spent in the sabla, a lot of the time. Um, And so that life radically changes with modernization where you have, again, a nine to five um, daily routine um, or, or or something or something similar. For, I suppose in Oman it was like from seven to four or something. Um, but again, it's it's very long working hours. Unlike um, you know the the era, and uh, the sabla basically becomes defunct. It becomes instead uh, into this major institution that's um, more like a a hall uh, for marriages and funerals and that sort of thing. So its role radically changes. And the coffee pot in turn um, basically retreats into a, an icon of hospitality uh, and, and um, that embodies like, civic values and, uh, and, and national principles that define modern nation state building. So it occupies a, a radically different role that again uh, becomes a way of transforming uh, the the nation state itself and and reworking um, the laws and histories and ethics of the imamate into one that uh, is now working through new urban spaces technologies a new sense of polity that is territorially organized now for the first time or at least from the 1970s onwards so this continual performance of these of various objects and sites ranging from the forts and castles uh, to the coffee pot to um, the um the trading tao they basically are instilling the ethical and effective groundwork of this of the sultanate right by, by propagating a particular understanding of history uh cultivating a particular kind of aesthetic experience for the makings of a proper Omani citizen and it is precisely because of these um new media technologies everything from school textbooks to newspapers television documentaries um that in fact that the citizen can access right that um, can access the experiential, the historical, the aesthetic experiences of the Omani past and daily life that actually become um, the basis for creating a new a new citizen right and these these objects all of a sudden they, they be, they've all become signs they've all become um, semiotic signs right to be decoded into immaterial meanings so. Uh, the material forms of a traffic roundabout, uh, this dasha, um, the coffee pot, um, the iconic image of a fort and castle, all of those basically become tethered to these immaterial uh, series of values and principles that demand and anticipate um, the val- values and behaviors anchored to Oman's historical chronicle. Right? And that historical chronicle in turn is literally anchoring um, citizenship, the the Omani man, as a new way of life, right? And so, again, the wide dissemination of these objects and architectures uh, become a a basis for um, habituating the eye and the body. Uh, They become a way of orienting um, daily practices, uh, affective attachments, uh, an ethical way of being, uh, that become um, ideally synonymous with structuring people's experiences of navigating an unknown future in a way, again, that's amenable to um, the demands of, of a modern Sultan. It's all about becoming a habit, performing force into in, in the end.
1: And one thing that really jumped out at me when you were discussing the coffee pot in the text is, of course, that as the coffee pot becomes more and more symbolic of what it means to be Omani, it's being less and less used in everyday life, right?
0: Yeah. Um. Well. Uh. Yeah. In daily life, it, that's true. It's not really being used at all. Um. It's. It's basically. Uh, people are still visiting each other, of course, uh, within their homes, rather than the sabla, which again was a public institution. Uh, but they're using a plastic thermos instead. It. It. it it's. It's easier. It's. It's uh, more practical, and that it preserves the warmth more of coffee. Um. But. Again, the point is like the sub the, the not just the sub lab, but also the coffee pot in turn, take on a new lease in life, a second life as you know Barbara Kirhen that Gimlet would say. And that is in that it's defining um, nationalism now or, or a national history in that it, it's pulled out for ceremonial occasions. Right, um, like when when um, if you ever go to Oman, if you ever go to people's offices, like uh, you know government officials or any kind of official, even in a a, a big company headquarters, they'll pull out that coffee pot very often, like the old traditional one, which is, or maybe they'll pull out uh, something modern that's in the semblance of the traditional coffee pot, and, they, and they'll give you coffee and dates. Um, so it, it's taken on a, a, a different kind of life, um, which is, in some ways, like as as important but in a profoundly different way um that that's again tethering the uh nation state and this new sense of of uh, belonging to this the state as uh, a citizen today yeah
1: and you've mentioned the Tao now a couple of times maybe you could uh, tell listeners what the dao is and its importance in oman
0: oh well um the Tao again is a uh, well basically um a generic name now for uh, major trading ships uh, that plied the Gulf region for trade, uh, for all sorts of maritime activities. And o- Oman is um, very unique uh, amongst the Gulf countries, as far as I'm concerned, in that uh, it has an extraordinary maritime history that became the basis for creating an empire, uh, not, not just in East Africa, but also in, uh, in the Indo-Pakistan region, uh, Gwadar uh, or the uh, basically Balochistan, uh, uh, ma- massive parts of it once belonged to the Omani Empire. So again, um, maritime networks and trade, including the ship that the, the Dow became instrumental um, in embodying that glorious history. And that's very proudly um, represented in um, the national museums today and the local ones.
1: And also included in in at least one roundabout, there's a picture of it in the book.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. So that that along with um, the co- co- coffee pots, forts, and castles that become part of you know the aesthetic of highways um, to uh, well the, the ubiquity of a certain kind of right? Each each uh, nation state of the Gulf has their own distinctive disdash, and, and and the Omani one with its tassel, um, its uh, and um, again, with the kuma from East Africa, become, again, synonymous with being Omani. Yeah,
1: yeah there, might, there might be listeners who don't know what a dishdasha is. Could you maybe describe it a little bit more and talk about its importance in Oman?
0: Yeah, uh, well, basically, again, the dishdasha is, is general for, um, for uh, the Arab Gulf countries. Uh, it's what men wear. It's, it's a long white, um, or it can be white, but it's, it's a long robe that's part of everyday wear. Amongst the citizens of the Gulf countries, um, it it can be many different colors. Certain colors are frowned upon, though. So it's usually uh, generally the most acceptable color is white. Uh, although one could say that um, wearing other colors is making a very strong statement, especially amongst men. So, you know, you, you wear more what would be considered more effeminate colors. Um, you know, that would, in fact, for many people in the Gulf, including in Oman, Point out to certain orientations with regard to your history and your background and your identity and so on. But it's generally uh, beige or white in in Oman. That's that's the norm.
1: And government ministers have to wear one.
0: Yeah, and they and they uh, they're not allowed to wear the kuma. In fact, they, they wear um, the Omani um, uh, imama or the uh, or the uh, turban.
1: Another object that you talk about in the book, but hasn't yet come up in uh, our conversation here is incense and uh, the importance of the symbol of the incense holder in Oman.
0: Uh, Yeah. So, uh, again, um, incense burning uh, for the for the house, as well as for clothing, uh, as well as, again, part and parcel of the rituals of hospitality uh, that Mandana Limbert, in fact, alludes to more than me. Uh, those all become a way through which um, incense burning also becomes um, part of the heritage imagery that's ubiquitous as part of um, the Omani uh, landscape. Um, uh, And and that's sort of, again, something that was ubiquitous and functional as part of day-to-day life in Oman um, during the imamate becomes part of a a national iconic imagery, a representation of what is unique about Oman's uh, history and, and, and citizenship values then um, often from 1970 onwards. Yeah.
1: So the Omani state uh, you write in the book uses heritage sort of as a counterbalance between the twin pillars of globalization and terrorism. Could you maybe elaborate on that for listeners?
0: Right. So one of, um, in elaborating the importance of the past, to Omani citizens, um, it became rather dangerous uh, insofar as one could argue, well, that's the take that terrorists take, right? That they emphasize the prophetic past um, in the history of the Sahaba uh, in order to live the present and future. Um, and how exactly is Oman distinct from that Islamist outlook? And uh, again, the emphasis that I got from officials was that um, the way in which those who are Islamists, the way in which they inhabit the past, is that they remain such stagnant. They emphasize um, a, a sort of a, a, a sense of living um, without change, in a state of stagnation, a sense of a, a state of timelessness. Whereas what Oman is trying to do is that they're using that past and carrying it basically on their shoulders, in order to navigate an unknown and open future. And that's what makes them distinctive from Islamist groups that might be oriented towards uh, violence, right? That um, in the sense that they want to live in the past, they want to stagnate there, they, they don't want to embrace change uh, or an, an unknown future, whereas we're thinking about that future and how to navigate it safely, and in a way, again, uh, consonant with uh, the ideals of the modern nation state. So we fully embrace that the the future is out there, it's unknown. um, And on that basis, that's why our history becomes so important as uh, a mode of habitus to to basically navigate and and live through uh, in order to embrace an unknown future in a way that's uh, indigenous to Omani nationhood, but it's also like consonant with uh, doing it in a, a proper, safe manner, right? Um, unlike uh, so an Islamist who would just be living in that past itself. Now, one could argue that this is rather um, reductionist and simplistic. But like, this is, these are the explanations that I got, basically, uh, from uh, from ministry officials.
1: And heritage also challenges then the Western orientation of globalization as they see it, right?
0: That is the other like um, challenge, right? It's not just, uh, the, again, the presence of Daesh um, that you know wants to return the region to 1,400 years ago, according to the officials, and they don't want to confront modern life. There, there, there was also a very strong sense that we don't have any control over a globalization that's more or less organized and deployed by Western powers, um, and on that basis, um, it's something that's all powerful that we have no control over. And again, Omani history and heritage becomes the basis through which you can filter and think through and navigate through those um, unknown, the, those, those um, challenges that are overwhelmingly powerful um, and uh, and define and shape our, 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 our modern life.
1: Towards the end of the book, you talk about the Lawati community in Oman. And could you maybe talk about the Lawati community in Oman and what role they play today?
0: Uh, well, the Lawati community, um, uh, uh, basically, it's, it's according to them, they came centuries earlier uh, to the Omani region as traders and merchants. Uh, although uh, scholars have only been able to trace them from the early 19th century, from the beginning of the al Saidi dynasty, uh, when Oman created its massive empire in, in East Africa, and uh, trading opportunities flourished. And so basically they are a community of uh, merchants and traders uh, who are primarily from Hyderabad, uh, who were um, of the Koja community uh, and, and Shia. And they were strong um, allies of the sultans, especially during the British era where, again, as far as the British were concerned, because they were part of the, the British, uh, the, they were part of the Indian people, as far as the British were concerned, uh, they were considered to be British subjects. And they very often acted as intermediaries between the, um, the Arab Omanis uh, and the sultan. And uh, because they were so rich and prosperous economically, uh, they very often um, supported the sultan through various financial, um, various financial means, including like uh, basically loaning uh, the sultan's money. And uh, unlike like the Hindu community or the Hindu merchant community um, that still had very strong ties with the British Raj or, or with India. Um, The the Lawati had their wives and children with them. They basically created uh, a really strong communal sense of belonging to Oman and to the sultans. Uh, So again, when when Oman became a nation state from 1970 onwards, they stayed on uh, because of those strong ties and networks. And uh, a lot of the Hindu merchants left. But at the same time, they had also strongly Arabized um, from the mid-19th century onwards because, again, because they were Muslims, uh, they had uh, they had basically converted from Nizari Ismailism or from fealty to the Aga Khan in the 19th century to Itna Ashirism uh, from Again, this is all all history, so one can't pinpoint dates. But mid 19th century onwards, so they became more and more um, Arab-oriented uh, in 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 the, their way of life. Um, they basically uh, were converted by ma- major um, missionaries from Najaf from Iraq, and uh, in that sense, like Arabic became part and parcel of you know, how they express their religious views, their debates and so on, their, their ritual practices. And so it basically being in Oman became more and more comfortable, even as they were a very distinctive community in that they were not Ibadi. Uh, again, in terms of they were not tri- uh, an, uh, an actual tribe from the Arabian Peninsula, even though they, they tribalized from the late 1970s onwards. Uh, but uh, again, because of their Indian origins, that also from 1970s onwards became becomes increasingly obscured uh, and hidden um, in, in that they become um, increasingly Arab. Uh, they, they move out of the enclave uh, of what is called the Surah Lawati, which is now, at least the outside of it is a major heritage site along the Matra Corniche, which is, again, part of the Muscat coastline. Um, and even though nobody um, is actually allowed into the enclave, it becomes part of um, the representation of the the specificity and the the glory of Omani heritage. And so it becomes part of the national aesthetic uh, uh, and and, um, part of the ubiquity of of, uh, heritage imagery in turn that defines Omani nationhood. So uh, at, at the same time, because ordinary people are not really allowed into the enclave. They're, they still maintain their distinctive uh, particularities as being a Shia community. They still, still at least within the enclave and um, within the families themselves, very often speaking kochki, which is um, again a, a, a language, um, a, which is a, a dialect of, of Sindhi and Kachi uh, from, the, uh, from the Indo-Pakistan subcontinent. Even though it's a dying language, and the younger generations um, are increasingly just speak Arabic and English, but even when you talk to the older generations of, of the community, um, they 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 basically talk a lot like me uh, when they're speaking, even when they're speaking Arabic, so with with a very strong Pakistani accent or whatever, a very Indo-Pakistani accent, you know. So, but they've been there for. They, their forefathers have been there, at least I, as far as I could attest, as a scholar, since the, ni- in the mid-19th century. So they're a really unique and a really interesting community with very strong ties um, of loyalty to the sultans of Oman, uh, whom they very often supported, um, or always supported, one could argue, against, um, well, against the Yabadis, <laughs> actually, it again, becomes a source of tension uh, when, it, when it comes to that um, in, in the present day.
1: I love this book so much. This book is so exciting. You write in such a a readable style. And I think there's something here for everyone. You appeal to people who are interested in Islamic studies. You appeal to people who are interested in the anthropology of time. You appeal to people who are interested in anthropologies of identity or alterity. Anyone who's interested in anthropology of the state needs to pick up this book. It's such an interesting overview that you provide. And then you get into such minute details without being pedantic or boring I read this so quickly and then had to go back and reread it more in detail just because I I was so excited to get to the end there is one tradition on the new books network that I always like to uphold before I let you go which is to ask what you are working on now
0: well I'm actually shifted focus altogether to a different country I'm working on Saudi Arabia now so uh, as you know the last 20 years um Saudi Arabia is a completely different, um, nation state. Um, its focus has moved from Islam, um, or from, from Sharia, as they understand it to a greater focus on the Royal family. And in some ways one could argue that they're doing exactly what Oman did, but well, 30, 30 years later or 40 years later, uh, which is really interesting to sort of think about. Uh, but today, um, there are a number of World Heritage sites in Saudi Arabia, including Jeddah. And so I'm looking at the politics of transformation of, of the Balad or the old city of Jeddah into a World Heritage site. And how, again, that transformation is changing um, people's relationship to space and time uh, within the old city, especially among uh, families, m- merchant families who were longstanding uh, residents and have very strong ties of belonging uh, to the Balad region. Um, the second project is on Medina. Um, and basically, uh, again, Medina is going through massive change. Like for the last few years, um, for the very first time, non-Muslims are allowed to go into Medina. And um, again, they visit some of the major sites connected to the Sirat al-Nabawi or the prophetic sunnah, uh, including the battles of Uhud and Khandak, and uh, basically, I'm looking at the transformations of these sites over the course of late 19th and the 20th centuries, um, and again, um, how the material transformations of these sites are connected to the ways in which the locals, the local medinans and fact relating to those uh, to those locals, as part of larger changes that are taking place in heritage, and in, especially in the, for the encouragement of religious tourism uh, in Medina. Yeah, so. Those are the two big projects I'm working on, both in Saudi Arabia. So it's a massive shift.
1: And once your next book is out, you know, I would love to have you back on the show.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I love to be part of the show again. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Thank you for being here. The book is Cultivating the Past, Living the Modern, published in 2021 with Cornell University Press. Again, Professor Amal Satchadina, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me.